Welcome Welcome to the Supplement Engineer Podcast. My name is Robert Chinesky. Joining us today is the founder and CEO of SMP Nutra, Mr. Frank Cantone. Frank, thank you for uh, joining us today, sir. How are you? Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Outstanding. It's uh, the holiday season is upon us, and I'm sure like uh, many manufacturers out there, you guys are uh, burning the midnight oil from uh, morning, noon, and night. So. Yeah, a lot of people getting ready for the you know new year, new me resolutions and having product ready to sell. Absolutely. Um, so first time, we haven't had many manufacturers on the podcast, so I definitely want to get into some very specific questions on the manufacturing side of things because not many consumers, just the average consumers, have any idea what in the hell goes on into getting those bottles with those wonderful pills and powders on the shelves. But before we do that, uh, anytime I have a first time guest, I like to get a little bit of their background. So can you walk us through how you ended up in this crazy world that we call home of the supplement industry? Yeah, I actually started out in the supplement industry. I was around 20 years old. I was a sales representative for another manufacturing company, and I've kind of pivoted off that. Uh, I founded two companies prior to this. This is my third manufacturing firm. Uh, S&P has been here for two years now. We've been able to achieve eight-figure revenues in both of the, both of the first two years. I attribute a lot of that to our marketing power on Google, customer relationships, and the innovation of our products. We have a lot of products that are first to market for the gummy formulations, world's first colon cleanse gummy, thyroid gummy, things that you typically see in capsule tablet or powder. We're able mm-hmm. to make a new rendition in a you know sleeker delivery format. Yeah. With starting in the industry, did you, like there's not a, a degree in supplement manufacturing. So how did you figure out you first wanted to get into the industry in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, in other industries. And then I had a family friend bring me into the vitamin business. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's no degree for it. So it was a matter of one of the first things I wanted to do was essentially learn all the pricing of the raw materials to figure out how to most competitively price out the products for our customers. Mm-hmm. And then really look into the advantageous dose of each ingredient. You know, your three point one two grams of beta alanine, six grams of citrulline. What do people really need to take in order to get the effect they're desiring, you know, not microdosing things, but helping our customers who are the brands make an effective product. Mm-hmm. How, how do y'all go about, I guess, not acquiring business, but putting yourselves out there in a, in a respectable manner? Because if over the last two years, if anybody's been somewhat tuned into the internet, you get blasted. The second you look up you know, manufacturing, if you want to start your own label stuff, you get blasted with like 15,000 different manufacturers that are just kind of these, you know, fly by night companies that they'll take your money and then you don't hear from them for eight, 12 weeks. And then they say, Oh, well, we got backlog and that I've had a couple of consumers that have had or clients have that issue. So what, how do you toe the line between putting yourselves out there or is it existing relationships that you've kind of nurtured and grown over your time in the industry? It's a combination of both. So we definitely do get a lot of new business. I'd say every day from you know our different tools like Google Ads, uh, Facebook marketing, et cetera, we probably get 15 to 20 new leads a day. Mm-hmm. These are anyone from, you know, they had a dream in the middle of the night of opening a supplement company to existing brands. Uh, we have seven sales representatives here. I handle some of the key accounts. So the main thing is setting the expectations. If the customer has a concept that's not viable or it's just not going to be competitively priced letting them know that ahead of time rather than kind of stringing them along and going through the process of something that's never going to happen um as long as you 
give them the expertise that we have. You know, a lot of our reps have been in the industry similar time to me. Mm-hmm. You can kind of weed out the people that aren't going to work out and then give the right amount of time to people that do have a viable idea and a, a good marketing plan behind it. Gotcha. Do you have any examples for the listeners about what a non-viable business strategy or marketing approach to starting a brand might be? Yeah. So in order to get into the supplement business, you're going to want to have at least a, I'd say twenty dollars to $40,000 budget between product manufacturing and product marketing. A lot of people make the mistake that, you know, if they have $10,000 and it costs $10,000 to make a supplement, that's great for us to manufacture, but we're only going to make it one time and it's not really profitable with the SOPs and everything we put into it to manufacture a product only once. We really live off of reorders. So we'll let them know that ahead of time. We actually have a marketing department here at SP. It's called SMS or Supplement Media Studio, mm-hmm. where we do videography, graphic design, and uh, different ad words for customers. But essentially, you know, it's the person that wants to make a pre post intra and, you know, protein product all in one. I mean, the, the bottle is going to cost. $70 manufacturing, are you going to be able to convince the consumer to, you know, purchase something for $199? Yeah, it's an all-in-one product, but, you know, they're, they're not getting the different flavors and, you know, different variations that they might want by buying multiple products. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have the people that they make a formula and they, they want someone to take 30 grams of vitamin C a day. Well, your body's, what, are, what is your body going to do with 30 grams of vitamin C a day? It's not even going to absorb that. So it's kind of letting those people know about what they can do differently if they really want to get into this business. The beauty of the business is when someone likes your product, there's continuity behind it. You know, rather than starting a clothing brand and someone buys a T-shirt once and you're not going to buy the same T-shirt 10 times, people will buy the same supplement month after month if they love it. So it's a great business from that perspective. And that's why I believe more entrepreneurs are getting into it, you know, every month and every year. Do y'all offer stuff as far as from the, the young companies that want to start up uh, drop ship to where y'all would retain the product on site for smaller brands? And then or do they do y'all only do it to where you manufacture it and then you ship it to their warehouse or their garage, wherever they're running their business out of and they're shipping? So currently we're set up for minimum orders of 1000 bottles. Mm-hmm. Drop shipping is something where there are other companies that offer it. We may even provide them some of our products. They're set up for the drop shipping model. They can print labels on demand, you know, they might charge you 12 or $14 for a product that we would charge you $6 for. But again, you don't have to invest in inventory. So it's a good solution for people starting out. Um, Mm -hmm. The way our machines are set up and the way our our business is set up, we're more geared towards people that are willing to make an investment into the business. Uh, Our minimum, again, starts only a thousand bottles. We have over 300 stock products to choose from. Again, a lot of them being industry first gummy formulation. So we're geared towards people going on Amazon. You really can't drop ship and sell on Amazon. Drop shipping is something where you're going to make your own Shopify store. You take the order, the manufacturer can ship it. Now you mentioned people shipping to their garage or, or basement. We do offer fulfillment. So you can buy a thousand bottles from us. We can move it into our fulfillment center and ship directly for the customers that order through your website. It's not an on-demand type program, but it is something that allows the brand owner to be a little more hands-off, focus more of their efforts on marketing and sales rather than the back-end nuances. Mm-hmm. And with the uh, Supplement Media Studio, 
do y'all have, I guess it's, it's probably on the brand owner side, but how much input do y'all have onto helping them trying to market and get their brand off of the ground? Is it kind of when, if they walk in, they say, here, here's my vision, but I'm not really the most savvy business individual or the, the, the slickest marketer out there. And is that when you guys can kind of come in and lend your expertise or is it, is it kind of just give and take based on the supplement owner? Yeah, we'll totally give our expertise because a lot of the times we're seeing what works. We're doing this every day. Uh, we live, breathe, and eat supplements. So if we're seeing these types of ads working on Facebook or TikTok or YouTube, we're going to show those examples to the customer and maybe let them put their own spin on it. Um, typically, we write the scripts. Uh, we come up with a lot of the collateral that's going to go into the marketing efforts if they choose to hire our service for SMS. By choosing that service, they're entrusting us. You know, Most of the reason those customers found us in the first place is their manufacturers, the individuals that they're going to work with on the SMS team designed mm -hmm. SMPs, media and marketing. So they can see it works. They found us. They purchased from us. They want people to purchase from them. They're using the same team. Okay. With the gummies, you mentioned that y'all are the first to market with several of the different specific types of formulation and bring in certain ingredient and blends to the market. How did y'all get into the gummy space and how were you able to cover up some of these really gnarly tasting ingredients like turmeric, curcumin? I mean, we've seen apple cider vinegar gummies from a bunch of different places. I don't know if y'all are manufactured like the guys behind all this, but we've seen an explosion of ACV gummies from a number of different brands. Um, so how did y'all kind of pioneer some of these ingredients and in the, just the development of the gummies in general? Yeah. So again, I'm doing this around eight years now. I'd say the first four were really strictly in capsule tablet and powder. Mm -hmm. um, around three years ago, four years ago, we started getting into the gummy space on a smaller scale, working with some partners, bringing them in and packaging them. Mm -hmm. And as it evolved, as you were able to put more into a gummy, you mentioned, how do we, I look at it, how do you make it as effective as a capsule? The way right. we do so is using higher standardized or higher potency extracts. So then rather than using 500 milligrams of an ashwagandha root powder, you know, we'll use 50 milligrams of a 10 to one extract, you know, 10 to one of 50 is equivalent to 500. So right. that's a one way we're able to make the labels and, and product as marketable with the developments in, in flavoring, masking agents, bitter blockers, it's becoming easier and easier to cover up things like turmeric. Um, you mentioned apple cider vinegar. When we see something like that happen, we have five different stock apple cider vinegar products, everything from sugar-free to, you know, one that might mimic the best-selling formula on the market. So it's really about staying with the curve and ahead of the curve in multiple facets when it comes to the gummy market, because it's so new. Yeah. Interesting. Um, We've seen a, uh, I was looking through the stock products y'all have on the site and recently I've seen a couple of other companies start to maybe get into mushrooms, different kind of medicinal mushrooms that are on there. So something like Lion's Mane, Rishi, Chaga, those. Um, is there any plans or have y'all had any requests to start doing some mushroom powders or mushroom mycelial extracts in your gummies? Yeah, we, we have a best-selling mushroom gummy currently. It's a, it's a mushroom 10 plex. Mm -hmm. It has everything from Lion's Mane, Chaga, Rishi. Pretty much everything you had mentioned, there's 10 different mushrooms, all at 10 to 1 extracts. So it's 250 milligrams of mushroom extract equivalent to 2,500 milligrams of raw mushroom powder per two gummies. It comes with a delicious raspberry flavor. I'd say that's actually probably our third or fourth best-selling product currently. 
And when you say product, are y'all selling it directly through your own in-house line or is this through the other brands that y'all are manufacturing for? Through brands that we manufacture for. Everything we do is as a third party contract manufacturer. We don't currently mm -hmm. have any brands or Shopify stores of our own. Everything we do is to support our clients that would sell through those avenues. Okay. And I guess that's something I'm curious about. Why don't a lot of contract manufacturers sell their own in-house line? Just, you know, I don't want to name any other brands, but like, why not have SMP neutral line and just have that on the shelf? Why go through another brand when the, the margin would probably be better for y'all to just sell products directly instead of for another brand? Or is that maybe be a conflict of interest? I know of some other manufacturers that do this and have started to do it more recently. We've looked into it in the past. Um, I'd say right now with the way the manufacturing firm is growing, mm -hmm. if we can continue to double the manufacturing every year, we don't want to take our attention off of that. It's like we have something great. You know, we need the whole team to focus on one thing, you know, five, six, seven years down the line. It's kind of more automated running itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brands are great. They're exciting. We have, you know, all the different formulas at our disposal, just a matter of manpower at this time and really focusing on what we're best at, I would say. You know, our, our marketers are great at what they do. They focus all their time and attention to marketing their brand. We focus all of our time and attention to making sure they have product to market. Gotcha. You mentioned at the beginning that you started SMP about two years ago. So this roughly the end of 2019, correct? Yeah, it was uh, the summer of 2019. Okay. So you start up 2019, good expectations. The shitstorm of 2020 happens all through 2021. What kind of unique challenges did that represent or present for you and the guys that started the brand versus what would normally go into running the day-to-day -day ops of a manufacturing facility? Yeah. I mean, very fortunately for our type of business, first of all, we were deemed essential. So we were open every single day, uh, yeah. even at the scariest times and, you know, April, May of 2020, March of 2020, there was such an influx in demand for elderberry products, any type of immunity product. I'd say the the difference what we were doing before and when doing then was just coming out with new immunity formulas. We actually tripled our revenue in uh, just a couple of months based upon people needing what we had. The main factor was what manufacturer had supply and which didn't. So mm -hmm. where other manufacturers might have not paid extra to get material in faster, fly it in, do whatever they need to, to ensure the customers would have the product to sell, we would do anything we had to. And there was never a time where customers weren't willing to pay to have that inventory. There was so much demand. As long as they could have it, they knew they could sell it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were chartering a lot of airplanes, doing a lot of things to make sure we had supplies on hand for our brands. Yeah. How do you, has the, I mean, every time we see as of late, everything is blamed on supply chain issues. It's, it's the amorphous term that everybody says, well, we got supply chain, you know, the price of creatine per kilo is now up over $20 a kilo. Last I heard from one of the, the brands I was talking to, same thing with whey protein, isolate, regular whey protein concentrate, citrulline used to be eight grand, $8 a kilo. Now I think it's in the high teens, might be touching $20 a kilo yeah, now. 20, 22. I've seen creatine all the way up to 45 where it was four or five. Um, we have a lot of people asking us for those things. Now we're not a raw material supplier, but we have access to all the raw material suppliers. So we get bids every day for 10 metric tons of creatine or citrulline just because people really don't know where else to look. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of that has to do with, especially the materials that come from China. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been regulating the amount of electricity manufacturing plants are able to utilize. Really? So their overall capacity is down. If some plants aren't being shut down, they can't run as many days as they were. So the overall amount of creatine or other ingredients in the market is lesser. More people are using it than ever. I mean, creatine is used right. for everything from pre-workouts, post-workouts, muscle growth to even cognitive benefits now. The yep. baby boomers are using it for certain products. So more people want it than ever. There's less of it. Price skyrockets. Yeah, that's, that's the one thing. Like I, I've heard that you know there's shipping delays because the, the boats can't get into the docks. Then there's not enough dock workers in the ports off California. Um, this is the first I had heard of them regulating the actual electricity at the, the Chinese manufacturing plants. Right. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, is there any reason why? Have they mentioned that? out? I haven't been as tuned into that side of the the news of it. it has more so to do with uh, politics within China, probably making sure some companies don't become too powerful, kind of regulating. So, okay. it's, uh, you know, more spread out as they like. It's yeah. pretty scary. Yeah. Is there any uh, light at the end of the tunnel? Have you heard any whisperings from your contacts within the industry or the supply chain as to when there might be a little bit opening up of materials or when material costs might be going down or we're not going to struggle or have huge delivery times on little stupid things like scoopers or the plastic yeah. bottles or anything like um, that. At this time, there really hasn't been any mention of when this is going to stop. Mm -hmm. A lot of the material suppliers, you know, they, not that they work off of fear, but they work off of demand. So they might tell you it's going to get worse order. Now they, they want your orders uh, earlier than ever. You know, we're, we're doing more and more forecasting, you know, where before you would just assume someone would have something as simple as a 45 millimeter childproof lid or, you know, whatever commodity products we use. Any little item in the manufacturing of a product can be a challenge. So we've aligned ourselves with uh, certain partners, different countries. You know, we're bringing in more bottles and closures now from India rather than China. They don't have the same restrictions. Mm -hmm. We can forecast how much we need, the, the shipping times a little better. And a lot of our stuff comes into the Jersey port, not the California port. So that's been great. We haven't dealt with the same issues. You know, there's, there's, it still takes a little bit longer, but we're letting our customers know if you were getting your product in eight weeks before, let's just plan for 12. It's, it's better to be safe than to be out of stock. Right. Do you, I guess from your spot in the manufacturing, do you see us ever getting, ramping up the amount of maybe uh, ingredient synthesis plants or manufacturing plants themselves to where we're actually making our own raws here in the States and not outsourcing as much to India or China or some of the other places that we get raws from? Yeah, and that comes down to a couple things. So there are more people looking to invest in uh, the American economy for manufacturing of ingredients. Keep in mind you know, something like turmeric that's typically going to come from India. So you're still going to bring the raw turmeric right. from there. It's usually more cost effective to just concentrate it there and, and ship it over. So there's going to be certain things that you can do that. There's going to be certain things that are more challenging. Mm -hmm. um, I do know of some companies opening amino acid processing plants here in the States, which is not something you've heard much of, but with all the amino acids going up so high and being a limited availability, now's the time where they can actually get into that market. You know, if, if uh, creatine is always going to be $4 coming out of China, no one's going to look to manufacture in the States. But when it goes up as high as it is, people are looking into these different uh, solutions. 
Interesting. Okay, good. Oh, that, that would be just bring something in a little bit more. I mean, I, it, it's obviously good to have economy and, and, you know, exchange goods with other countries for the sake of the global economy. But I always wonder, like, why don't we make more of those kind of things here instead of being more reliant on the powers that be in other countries when who knows if there's going to be an uprising or whatever. And you're, you're kind of at the behest of whatever regime takes over in those countries. For sure. What challenges um, did you encounter when starting up SMP that maybe you had or that you were able to avoid? Let's let's approach it from that aspect. So you were with two other manufacturers previously in your tenure, and then you started up SMP. What mistakes or learning curves did you go through with those two that you were maybe able to surpass or more easily tackle when starting up SMP? Something I noticed, uh, those first two firms were strictly custom manufacturing. So you send us your formula. We manufacture no less than 1500 bottles. You can choose everything. The sizes vary. There's 40 different bottle sizes, 10 different lid sizes, thousands and thousands of raw materials used every year. Keep in mind, you know, any raw material a manufacturer buys, you're going to buy at least 25 kilos. You might use five. All of a sudden you have 20 kilos left of something that costs $50. You know, that's, that's just a waste. You don't even know if they're going to order it again. What we did is we invested in our own formulations, things that we knew customers were looking for. And by doing that, we were able to minimize the different offerings we have. I'd say 60 or 70% of our products go in a clear 250 cc bottle just like this. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to buy so many different bottles. Um, we've converted majority of our lids to child resistant lids based upon the fact that, you know, a lot of the products are gummy. So you don't want a kid opening it and eating too many. Right. So by minimizing the different variations in the supply chain that we utilize, we're able to buy more of that one thing, get the price we need and make sure it's always available. Mm -hmm. We still offer custom manufacturing. You know, we might quote it a week or two longer than some other manufacturers, but in the end, it needs to be on time. You know, if someone's going to tell you they can do something in six weeks and it turns into 10, everyone's just upset. If I tell you it's 10 and it's done in nine, everyone's happy. So that's what I would say is the main differentiator that we were able to do with this firm is investing in what we know is going to sell, not carrying so many different items. Because I've seen companies at the end of the year, okay, great. You have $3 million in inventory. Some of that stuff lasts two to three years. You don't know if someone's going to buy it again. Right. It's better to be cash positive and have things that you know are going to sell through than a bunch of, you know, odd extracts that you don't know if they're going to sell through. Yeah. Is it, has it been difficult to try and source equipment that you need for actually running the manufacturing facility? No, the equipment hasn't been that much of a challenge. I would say bringing it in is taking longer than usual. Mm -hmm. There are some used products that you can buy within the States, but when it comes to equipment, um, you know, there's various ways to go about it. There are other companies that aren't as fortunate. They might close down. You can go to an auction and see what they have to offer. You can buy brand new equipment from any of the, you know, great different suppliers. You can import it. Um, we specialize in a bit higher speed of equipment. So we're usually buying things new. When you mean higher speed, just the, like the RPMs they're running at or how much volume they can turn up per minute, per hour kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. If you're doing smaller runs, example, you know, there's some manufacturing companies they'll do as low as a couple hundred units and it could even be somewhat custom. Yeah. You're going to have smaller scale equipment because the change over time is going to be as great. Um, mm -hmm. When you're doing longer, larger runs, 
the change over time won't be as much of a factor because you're running the same product for you know a shift or two. And again, a lot of our items come in the same size. So mm-hmm. even if I go from one gummy to another, one brand to another, if it's the same bottle, same lid, I don't have to change that component of it. Just change out the label at the end. It's, it's actually a great solution. Okay. Interesting. Making the gummies. I don't know how much of the process you can actually walk us through or walk the, uh, the consumers through without giving away any kind of trade secrets that you might have, but is it kind of like if you would make, you know, jello or some other kind of gummy at home where you'd mix the ingredients and you mix the, the gelatin in there, you, you mix it up and then you kind of let it sit to the side or is there some other way to, and obviously you have other flavorings and, and mm-hmm. preservatives and stuff that you have to put in there to make it shelf stable. But can you walk us a little bit through how that process works? Yeah. I mean, to an extent, it's got to go into a mold and it's got to sit and become that shape. Uh, we have made hundreds of shapes, everything from dinosaurs to stars um flamingos anything you could really think of everyone wants to be unique in that way mm-hmm. so i'll walk you through the the steps of making a, a custom gummy because we do have people come to us with their own formulas so essentially they'll send us over their wish list a lot of times we'll have to let people know hey this is the load size that a gummy can carry we make gummies anywhere from two grams to five grams obviously a four or five gram gummy can handle more active ingredients so that's yeah. agreeing on that point um there's some ingredients that you're still not going to be able to mask the taste so with our expertise and, and past knowledge we'll let them know about that off the bat once we agree upon the formula we'll give them a price quote if the price quote works and the minimum works typically the minimum for example for a custom gummy so we run ten thousand bottles 60 gummies in the bottle mm-hmm. make around six hundred thousand gummies so They'll agree upon the price and the quantity. They'll pay us a deposit so we can start working on R&D. We'll make gummies on a small scale just for taste approval and texture approval. Once they approve that, and based upon us not over-promising on what can go in the gummy, we're typically able to get approval by the second try. Mm-hmm. Most, most of the time we do it on the first try. They, they could pick their flavor, shape, color, Um, We could even do batches of multiple colors where you see, you know, a red bear, a green bear, and a yellow bear. That just has a slightly higher minimum. Yeah. So from there, it goes into the full-scale manufacturing process. We purchase all the raw materials that would go into it. And then similar to, you know, how capsules of powders made, there's a a blending stage. Mm -hmm. Then there's a gelling stage. The product's mixed with the pectin and the organic cane sugar, whatever the carrying agents may be. Uh, We have sugar-free solutions. We have organic sugar solutions, and then standard. So when they choose their base, their active ingredients are mixed into that base. Once it's mixed, it'll go into a molding. So we use both starch molds and starch molds. The starch molds are made out of you know metallized material. Mm-hmm. Once it's set in the mold, it'll go into a, a cooling and drying stage. From there, it'll undergo some type of uh, quality assurance. We'll, we'll make sure that all the Shapes are uniform and colors are uniform. There's no differences throughout the batch. And then it'll go into product testing. When the raw materials come in as a GMP manufacturer, you'll test the materials for identity, potency, micros, and heavy metals. Mm -hmm. When the finished product's done, you'll test that for the same parameters. Once this has all happened, it can finally go into a packaging stage where people get to see the finished product. We put the label on the bottle. Gummies fill into the bottle, lids automatically applied, lot and expiration goes in the bottom of each and every unit, goes into cases, and then 
you know, we ship from anywhere from overseas to other countries, Walmart, vitamin shop, CVS, GNC, you name it. So that's the step-by-step process on a simplified scale that would go into manufacturing a custom gummy. Fascinating. All in all, that process is going to take between with the sample, once the sample's approved, mm-hmm. the process is going to take 12 to 14 weeks. Okay, yeah. So if I brought a, an order for you, I say, hey, I want 10,000 bottles of some kind of, you know, probiotic gummy or something like that. We're talking like turn turnaround time for everything to go through sampling and final product. Sampling is going to be about 15 business days mm-hmm. once we agree upon the formula and the price. Once the sample is approved, manufacturing time with testing, release, packaging, everything in it, 12 to 14 weeks. Very good. Very good. Uh, there's a couple of things that you, you brought up when you were rolling through everything that I'm, I'm curious about. First off, let's say we're going to run the identical number of units. Um, we'll say a thousand or 10,000 bottles, pick, pick whichever number you want and something that could be reasonably done in gummies and in, you know, a powder versus capsule. So something maybe like a multivitamin, mm-hmm. what are we looking at at a difference on cost of goods? from the the gummy form of it to a capsule or a just a straight like powder that you could mix in eight ounces of water in it and do? That's a great question. So I'd say gummies right now, because there's so much more that goes into it. Also mm-hmm. understand the, I don't want to say the riskier to make, but if you manufacture a capsule, the capsule is not going to spoil or go bad over time. There's less liability, especially for the manufacturer mm-hmm. in producing a capsule. It's, it's a straight up job. Uh, with gummies, you know, there is time you, you want to make sure these gummies are going to last at least two to three years there's no spots that occur on them mm-hmm. so the same ingredients going into the product the gummies uh delivery format is going to probably be around 20 to 30 percent higher okay per unit yeah. and that's what the brands are paying because the customers are more interested in that delivery format a flavored powder it's going to be Probably a little, if it's the same exact active ingredients, mm-hmm. the flavoring can sometimes cost more than the ingredients. So that might be interesting. similar to where the gummy is going to be. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a flavor or sweetener can be more costly than a vitamin or mineral that is, you know, standard calcium carbon or something like that, or a standard mm-hmm. amino acid that hasn't went up. So the flavoring can, pay, uh, can be a major aspect in a lot of these different deals. Okay. Do y'all do all the flavoring in-house or is that or like y'all have a flavor chemist that does that or do you, is that y'all work with one of the flavor houses out there? We have a food scientist and then for some more challenging projects, we do have different flavor houses we work with. Okay. All right. Um, one to think, oh, sugar-free gummies versus the sugar gummies. Is one a little bit easier to deal with as far as flavoring uh, or is that more ingredient specific? You'll notice that the sugar-free gummies just, they're a little more, from what I see, lackluster in flavor. They're Mm -hmm. not as potent or pungent, but they still taste great. I mean, it's a a treat any way you look at it. And when it comes to, I would say the load size could be different. You might be able to get a little more active into a gummy with sugar than something that is sugar-free. The sugar-free bases are typically made up of malitol and isomalt. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything's going to have pectin. Pectin's going to be around between 12 and 18% of the solution. Mm-hmm. Majority of the gummies we produce are pectin-based, so they're vegetarian or vegan-friendly. We might do you know, a handful of gelatin-based gummies a year. Mm-hmm. That's what I was curious about because I would have thought that 
the actives could possibly be higher with the sugar-free, if you, especially if you're using something like Ace-K or sucralose, um, just because the, the amount of weight of sugar that you have to use is, is much more than that. But I guess you're not – or I, those ingredients, those sweeteners, probably aren't used as frequently as, as you mentioned, like the maltitol and isomalt are. So maltitol and isomalt are sugar replacements that would mimic sugar in weight and texture. Right. Sucralose, keep keep in mind, let's let's say there's a three gram gummy. Mm-hmm. You know, around 50% of it or a little bit more is gonna be either the sugar, glucose syrup. That's for the sugar base, the sugar-free base would be maltol or isomalt. You can't utilize that much sucralose, stevia, mm-hmm. ace candy gummy. It, it, it would burn your tongue. They're so potent. Right. Uh, you don't need that much. So while you can use sucralose, stevia, these things to assist with the flavoring it's mm-hmm. not a base for the gummy you need to have something for the active ingredients to sit in and a lot of brands that come to us don't fully understand that in the beginning and we have to teach them that you know there, there has to be the gel the mold what makes right. it itself yeah and then so yeah so what you're saying is just to kind of reiterate for the customers that you couldn't just mix, you know, water, pectin, and a little bit of sucralose together to, and get a, this a comparable amount of volume that could hold the same amount of ingredients that you could with using either like the glucose base or the isomalt and or maltitol base. It's just it wouldn't be as viscous or able to gel properly. Exactly, and they're called pectin gummies, but again, the pectin is usually less than twenty percent of the overall composition. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. I'm, I'm learning a lot during this conversation too. It's, it's the gummy side is something I'm not, uh, I've had a couple of brands come to me and, and suggest doing gummies. And I just, it's an area that from like the nuts and bolts of how they're actually put together. It's a, this is fascinating. So, you know, this is right. as informational. If I ask a dumb questions, because this is, you know, a weak spot in my, uh, my knowledge base of supplement manufacturing. That's what we're here for. We answer these questions on a daily basis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's outstanding. It's great information. Um, you brought up GMP regulations a, a little while ago. Walk, and we, we see that stamped on so many thousands of supplement bottles, and consumers take that as, "Hey, I've got this nice little GMP or CGMP seal on here. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside." Can you walk them through what it actually takes to uh, achieve that certification? What are some of the regulations and processes you'll have to go through, as far as either from the, the FDA side or any other regulatory agencies? Yeah, so last week we actually had a third-party audit through SQF. Uh, we decided to go with SQF, which is a food safety organization, based upon the fact we're doing more food-based products. We do a lot of the gummies. We do a lot of collagen powders and different drink mixes. So mm-hmm. rather than your typical UL or NSF, we felt that SQF as a third-party certifier made sense for us as a almost functional food supplement manufacturing company. So essentially they're going to send an auditor over And the first thing they're going to look at is your SOPs or standard operating procedures. How do you move the process along and how do you control each and every step to make sure there's no cross-contamination, deviation, something that would make for a bad batch? Mm -hmm. So they're going to be very interested in going over each and every SOP. Then, okay, you have it written down that you're going to do it this way. Show us the process that you follow those SOPs. They're going to look into your batch records, um, different shipping logs to ensure that what you say you're doing, you're doing on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to just take a look at your overall, you know, warehouse production. How is the flow of the product? They want to see that the product is essentially always moving forward. 
when you move the product forward to the production process, and I'm talking about how it goes through the plant, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of backup. Um, you eliminate the cross-contamination possibility. So mm-hmm. an order like that is typically going to be between two to three days. And at the end, they're, they're going to give you a score. Almost every time, you know, they're going to ask you to improve one or two different things. They give you, you know, maybe seven to 10 business days to write a correction for a recommendation they made. And mm-hmm. then you get, you know, a fancy new certificate and you're third party certified. Very interesting. Very. Do you all ever foresee going and expanding into the functional food space even more? So you've got collagen, you've got the gummies, you've got some of the other powders like protein powders and whatnot. Um, have you ever thought about tackling possibly protein bars, protein cookies, or any of those kind of, or like the beef jerky sticks that we're starting to see certain uh, supplement companies put out? Yeah, that's um, a bit different than exactly what we do, mm-hmm. getting into those types of food products, things that could even possibly spoil. I mean, those are true foods. I would say the next thing that we're actually starting to market now, we have worked out a relationship with a partner, and then if we wanted to take the manufacturing in-house, we could, is actually the pet market. Uh, we just released mm-hmm. a line of soft chew products for dogs and cats that mm-hmm. we feel like that would be a very interesting segment for us. There's not a lot of manufacturers. There's not a lot of private label suppliers. It's something where we could become you know, the footnote for that industry. We have already very marketable formulas for the pet market. Uh, we have some of the lowest minimums. They started between 1,000 and 2,500 bottles. And believe it or not, the consumer is willing to pay more for their pet supplements than they are for their own. That's what I was about to say. I was gonna. Yeah. People feed their pets better than they feed themselves a lot of the time. So I was gonna 100%. say that's. And I give an example a lot. You're familiar with these different terms. So you have your thousand milligram, 180, 120, 180 EPA, 120 DHA mm-hmm. fish oil soft gel. I put 180 in a bottle. You sell it to, you know, uh, a person on Amazon. It's gonna sell for like twelve dollars. Yep. You put a dog on the front of it all of a sudden it's 24 yeah. same exact soft gel going in the bottle the same count so when we realized this we did um start to invest in the pet market and i i see smp pets you know becoming a, a large share of our business in the future as well yeah i've seen a couple of sports nutrition brands already starting to do some animal lines or just animal-based products and i've got another guy that was a, a long time uh rep for uh, one of the major kind of bodybuilder brands um, he's now started up his own kind of peanut butter and functional food company, making dog uh, like a peanut butter that's safe for dogs. That's got some joint ingredients in it and whatnot. Yeah. And so it's it's crazy the lengths people will go to for their pets and whatnot. I mean, I I love animals. I had a dog growing up. I don't have one now because I have a four year old and a wife. So that's an, that's enough running around my house as it is. Um, but yeah, people people love their animals, and like you said, they will pay outrageous prices for everything. Yeah, from a business standpoint, it's a great move. Um... I read another study that the average, you know, if you have one dog, more than half of the people that have one have multiple dogs. So yep. right away you have multiple new consumers in the household if you start selling pet products. Yeah. Uh, I imagine most of the ingredients, I mean, there's obviously going to be a few exceptions, but on a milligram per kilogram basis, the dogs can be able to get by with a lot less than a fully grown human would, unless you're talking about something like a Great Dane or a German Shepherd where you get some of those big ass dogs or like a full grown golden doodle or something like my sister has. Yeah, the dosage varies for those types. I mean, 
essentially you might see pre-workouts uh you know new users take half a scoop or one scoop experienced users take two scoops same thing for the pet market but it's just done in weight it's not done mm-hmm. on tolerance so dogs under 20 pounds one soft chew you know 20 to 50 pounds two soft chews the dogs over 50 pounds they might use three soft chews and that's another reason that we made all of our stock pet products 90 mm-hmm. count per bottle so even for the larger dogs it'll still be a 30-day supply if they're taking three a day yeah and then for the smaller dogs i mean it's three months supply and it's nice and if you have one dog you, you most likely have two so that one bottle can last uh for both your pets really smart really really smart uh jumping back into the ingredient side of stuff one of the ingredients that came under fire and it's kind of still in limbo uh the last i heard which is about a month ago was n-acetylcysteine knack um uh, for obvious reasons um have y'all heard any more or do y'all get requests to stock that a lot or you know it's it's a very acidic tasting thing so could you even get a quality dose of it into a gummy like a 600 milligram dose probably stinks tastes awful Yes, it uh, does. Something we've looked to in the past. But um, I mean, what I do when something like that happens, first and foremost, as soon as it's even in the gray area, we'll start yeah. advising our customers not to manufacture because you'll have a lot of people who are opportunists and they'll try to ride it as long as possible. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as it's, it's banned by the FDA, you're going to get stuck with a, with a ton of inventory. Um, the other thing is I don't see any more... If you type in N-acetylcysteine on Amazon, there's only a couple products that are N-acetyl. You'll see some L-cysteine products. Um, it's almost like they've started to weed out the people selling it. And I've seen this happen with other ingredients as well. Yep. You know, I'd say about 50% of our products now are for mm-hmm. Amazon sellers. It yep. was higher. We did recently get into Costco and, and some other big uh, stores like that. So mm-hmm. we've been able to spread out our business, but we really do cater to the Amazon seller and try to lend our expertise on, I mean, if we're working with 500 people, if it's not a big, big secret, you know, I'll let you know what other people um, do to protect themselves and, and make sure that their business is going to be around for a long time. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, one thing that I've, I've always found interesting is that obviously when a brand starts manufacturing, they, they sign an NDA with a contract manufacturer. Why is it that so many supplement brands play it close to the vest on where they're getting their manufacture, uh, their supplements manufactured? Is that protection on the contract manufacturer's part? Is that protection on their part? Or just why is it always such a big mystery or, or a secret where companies choose to have their products manufactured? Because if, if you're proud of the business relationship you have, it, it would almost seem like you would want to say, hey, manufactured by SMP Nutra, and then you know, just go on with it that way. When I first started, it was very cliche for brands to advertise or even say openly who they manufactured with. And LinkedIn wasn't as popular then. I mean, now you'll see a brand owner conversating with their manufacturer on LinkedIn and you can kind of connect the dots. Hey, that guy's making his product there. But I think in the beginning, a lot of the brand owners almost wanted to make it seem like they were making their own products. So that their customers would think, oh, they got this great big laboratory and this great big company, so I should trust them. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the NDAs, there's a few different types of people that make you sign an NDA. The first person is the product, that, the person that never does anything. That's what NDA stands for sometimes. They have this crazy idea and they think that they're going to 
save the world and they want they're more so afraid of you as the manufacturer hearing their formula and then going and making it yourself yeah first of all i've seen i see thousands of formulas a year um yeah why would i take yours i have my own you know but right. they're very protective it's almost like those people that you know they have a thing that they want to patent and they can't tell anyone because someone's gonna go steal it that's the first type of person the second type of person yeah, they don't want people to know where they get their product manufactured. We have clients that um, when we have a tour, someone comes in and wants to see our facility, that client doesn't want anyone to know that he manufactures with us. So we can't be running his product on a line that day when a customer comes in because they maybe they want people to think they make their own product. The other yeah. thing is if you have a great relationship, maybe you found the manufacturer that has the best price on alpha GPC, so you have the most competitive alpha GPC product with the highest potency, you don't want your competitors to know where you're getting it because then they'll just call me or call whoever you're working with and they're mm -hmm. able to replicate your business model. So that's that's a very important factor where they don't want to kind of give away their secret sauce. I mean, their manufacturing could be in sometimes as important as their marketing. And then, you know, there's just the people that it's standard business practice to do an NDA. That's the third person. They just cover their bases. Um, mm -hmm. If I ask them to be a reference, I might have a new customer who wants to speak to an existing customer and they'll, they'll call and let them know that they do work with us and, you know, let them know the job we do. So there's the people that are just afraid people are going to steal from them, afraid people are going to copy them, and then people that just cover the bases. Great. Good, good insight. Um, you brought up something else I'd like to touch on the, you said who's got the best potency alpha GPC and it rem immediately reminded me of a question I had this past Saturday when I was doing another podcast. Um, somebody wrote in and said, Hey, why is it that when I take this pre-workout that has 3.2 grams of beta alanine, I feel the tingle so much stronger than when I tried this other pre-workout and it's got the exact same amount of beta alanine in it. And my response was, um, and feel free to correct me or elaborate on wherever I'm saying is that they're obviously probably getting different sources of beta alanine. So they're getting it from maybe a different supplier in China and one of them actually has a fuller potency. So it's, it's actually, you know, 99 or 98% beta alanine and a little bit of filler where this other one is probably like 60% beta alanine and God knows whatever else is mixed in with the powder. So is that a common thing for contract manufacturers? Like they'll just get some really cheap bulks and they're not testing it to see the, the purity and potency of it. So there are ingredients where that could happen. So with something like beta alanine, I've actually never seen a beta alanine that's not at least 98%. Mm -hmm. And if you're using a GMP manufacturer, we do have to test each and every batch. 10 years ago, you could do skip lot testing where, okay, I bought this same product from this same vendor five times. It's passed every time. I'll test it once out of every three. Manufacturers mm -hmm. don't even do that anymore. We're, we're so strict. So we'll test each and every lot that comes in. And again, it's always going to be between 98 and 99.9% .9 potency for beta alanine. When someone feels one more than the other, you know, you have your beta alanine, you have your carnison. I've had people tell me that they feel carnison more. That's a possibility. Some people put carnison on the label. Some people use carnison and they don't put that. Um, other times it could be what else is in the product. Mm -hmm. So it could be kind of meshing with the other ingredients and giving a greater effect. If you have nicotinic acid, which is the flush form of niacin mixed with beta alanine, you're going to be bright red, you're going to be tingling, you're going to be hot. If you have niacinamide, which is the regular form of niacin that's flush, that doesn't give a flush, mm -hmm. you're not going to feel as crazy with the beta alanine. Um, 
Also, it could be a factor of did you eat that day? How empty is your stomach? I mean, supplements can be, you know, similar to other things people put in their body where they build a tolerance. You know, how much water did you have that day? How much food did you have? You'll feel different ways. Very good point. With branded ingredients. So let's say you I'm running a supplement brand and I want to put a patented ingredient in there, something like estrogen from new live science or nitrosogene from nutrition 21 or you know pico 2 from compound solutions any of these big ingredient houses and you're going to be my contract manufacturer where do you come into the the process of do you have to sign and get the materials from the ingredient supplier does me as the brand owner have to do that yeah, which you're one is that sign with the brand owner it's a tmla trademark licensing agreement mm -hmm. and there's different ways that they do it so some companies they just want to ensure that if you're putting that on your label, you are buying that. They're regulating who's using it. Uh, in the past, there's been um, map pricing where, mm -hmm. you know, if you're using Go BHB, we actually, you don't sell it for less than this per serving because people were coming in and selling it really cheap. Um, and then they might even offer some incentives where you can use the trademarked ingredients. Some people use trademarked ingredients just because they believe it and they love it, but they mm -hmm. don't want to advertise that brand on their label. That might be another factor where they don't want people to know why their product works so much better than the other Alpha GPC. Um, raw material suppliers, they have now started to introduce things where, hey, if you put our logo on the label, so consumers know that you're using our branded ingredient, we'll give you a 5% discount on the raw material price. That's another hmm. reason that they might do trademark licensing so they can build a relationship with the brand, make sure that they stay with that material. Um, there's pluses and minuses to trademark materials. The positive is there's usually a lot of studies that go into it. Those studies, as long as you use the recommended dosage, you can use in your marketing. So you didn't have to pay $100,000 to do a double blind placebo, but right. you bought that ingredient that cost three times more than the standard, but now you can use those studies. Mm -hmm. um, a negative to trademark ingredients could be supply chain. You have that on your label. You can only get that from one guy. You know, I can get beta alanine from 20 guys right now. I can get carnison from one. If I don't have a long-standing relationship with them or whoever, whatever trademark material, you can run into issues where all of a sudden you're out of stock. Um, I've seen this happen with some different glutathiones and other types of trademark ingredients. So it's good to know, you know, how much they carry. And that might be something you want to forecast out longer because you are limited in who you can purchase it from. Excellent. All right. Um, anything else you'd like to touch on that we haven't? We're I know we're getting close to the, uh, the hour mark here, and we've, you've got some other things to, to tackle for today. But is there any other aspects of the the business or the manufacturing process that you think would be pertinent for the listeners to kind of be aware of? Yeah, something I mentioned a lot of uh, other interviews or you know media I do is just the the low barrier to entry for people to get into the supplement business at this time. I feel like in the past, and we, we've had customers call us and ask, hey, do I need to get my products approved by the FDA? No supplements approved by the FDA. Uh, the manufacturers are regulated. The ingredients are regulated. Is it a grass ingredient? Is it a new dietary ingredient? So it's good for entrepreneurs and, and people that you know have a dream to get into the supplement business and, and help people with beneficial products know that they can call someone like SMP or other great certified manufacturers and you know, have a product in, in a couple of months because the barrier to entry is so low now uh, with the different techniques that people use on Amazon. I mean, I know people that have had day jobs 
and they start a small Amazon business and they go to some seminars and they take some classes and they really focus their talents on marketing at Amazon. And, you know, in, in a year or two, they quit their day job. And at this time, we've seen more exits from Amazon sellers, you know, taking what they built and selling their companies from between uh, I've seen from $5 million to $25 million in, in just four or five years. A lot of private equity firms are highly interested in continuity-based businesses, supplements being one of them. They're injecting hundreds of millions of dollars to buy out these smaller firms. Maybe it's a husband and wife running it out of their house and uh, they want to give it more tools and resources and they'll buy it for a, a very high multiple and then um, add it to their catalog of other brands. So it's definitely a great time to get into the supplement business. Uh, any, do you see, uh, I think I already asked you this, the supply chain issues lightening up. I had originally heard that it was going to be towards the end of this year, but now I'm not hearing until maybe middle of next year, as far as everything kind of settling back to what it was maybe mid to late 2019. Yeah, I mean, it's going to have to work itself out eventually. And I think also what you're going to see is for the materials that are a major issue, people are going to incorporate them less into their formulas. So the amount of brands selling, again, a glutathione or something that's maybe more specialty, SAMe, S-adenosylmethionine, um, they're going to start to limit those different brands selling it in the the big corporations will continue to sell it. The big corporation can tell you, hey, I'm going to use this many kilos over the next 18 months. Have it ready. Yeah. The new guys, they might have started a year ago. It wasn't a problem to get that product. Now it is. They have to pivot and, and find something that's more readily available, that more something that fits their business model. So I think it's a combination of supply chain correcting itself, but also people and brands kind of correcting their buying behaviors or investing in a forecast. I mean, I still have brands that expect me to make product in a week and I have brands that give me literally 20 weeks to make a product. So yeah. as long as everyone's on the same page, you know, we can get through the supply chain issues together. It's, it's something that's possible. Do you see the desire for, we used to have, especially from like the sports nutrition side of things, you know, we had the, the prop blended ultra concentrated dose stuff that was really just a giant gross prop blend of pixie dust ingredients, but it, we made it sound cool because there was a bunch of exotic stems and caffeine mm -hmm. in there. Then we went to like the 25 serving, 25 grams serving pre-workouts. Do you see it now kind of drifting back towards almost that minimalist science or you, know, you have a bunch of smaller formulas that are stackable and complementary to each other? Are you starting to see that from the manufacturing side? People want smaller formulas or is there still that demand for fully blown formulas? So something that I was mentioning before with the testing of each and every ingredient mm -hmm. um, here at, at SP, we actually prefer to work with formulas that are 12 ingredients or less. Mm -hmm. If you're going to throw 20 ingredients into a product, 30, 40 ingredients, this is a green superfood that I'm manufacturing similar products with those ingredients. Um, you know, we, we might ask you to reduce it. Or we might ask you to, to find someone else to produce it because um, it's not something that is going to be viable from a testing standpoint from a material holding standpoint, and we do believe in what we produce. So you're better off putting 10 ingredients at double the dose than 20 ingredients at half. You're going to get more of an effect. Um, we look to have our products fully dosed. Something we didn't touch on is a lot of our stock capsule formulas. We utilize organic new flow, which is an organic brown rice extract that replaces mm -hmm. silicon dioxide, magnesium stearate, 
uh, stearic acid. So we do look to produce clean formulas whenever possible. And we do look to use advantageous doses and minimize the overall number of ingredients so we can have more of one. Yeah, so less additives and fillers and more actual actives in there for the benefit of the consumers. Which allows us to work with more quality-oriented brands and build a relationship with those people. We're not really looking out for the people looking to make the cheapest product at the highest volume so that they can you know, increase their margins. We want, we want to make good products and have good customers. Great. Outstanding. Frank, uh, thank you so much for your time. This is very, uh, I, I know the listener is going to enjoy this, but this was just edu- extremely educational for me for learning a lot of the ins and outs of the manufacturing side of things that I hadn't really gotten as deep dive into outside of just some other conversations I had had offline and whatnot. So first off, thank you for the uh, the education and the, the, the talk that I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, appreciate you having me, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Happy yeah. holidays. You too, sir. Any other uh, thing you want to plug? Uh, best ways for people to contact you or brand owners? Because we have other brand owners that listen to the podcast, not just average consumers uh, that may be looking to explore new manufacturing partnerships and whatnot. Yeah. SMPNutra.com is the easiest way to find us. My email is frank at SMPNutra.com. We refer to ourselves as the most responsive manufacturer. So if you have any inquiries or have any needs, maybe your current manufacturer isn't delivering on time, or you're just looking for a more unique way to sell your product, feel free to shoot me an email. We'd love to work with you. Awesome, Frank. Thank you very much, and uh, have a great day. Great week. Thanks so much.